0: Hi dear listener and thank you for tuning in to A Minder today. I'm Nyla, I'm a regular host on the podcast and usually cover prevention and intervention of Alzheimer's, but today I'll be presenting part two of cognitive and behavioral changes linked to Alzheimer's disease. I've got eight papers for you from July 2022 and we'll be looking at topics such as symptom fluctuation, sex differences in the relationship between depression and cognitive decline, and the impact of social networks on dementia, coming up right after this quick introduction. Welcome to A-Minder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography, Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. So this is part two of a two-part episode. Part one was released just a couple weeks ago. It's episode number 303, in which Judy covered eight papers on behavioral and sensory processing deficits in Alzheimer's disease. You can check out her episode to learn about the connection between olfaction and memory, how the processing and recognition of facial expressions is disrupted in Alzheimer's, how eye movement tracking could help diagnosis, and to find out about behavioral changes including difficulty completing sentences or fear of falling. For today's episode, I have another eight papers for you and this time the focus is on neuropsychiatric and cognitive changes. We'll talk about depression, social isolation, and the importance of maintaining relationships, fluctuation in symptoms, and we will finish with a couple papers on statistics and deep learning to help track and classify patient data from clinical notes. Let's start off with three papers on neuropsychiatric changes. As you take in these summaries, please do keep in mind that these are based on the abstracts of the papers, and only provide a little snapshot of these studies. If you'd like to follow up on anything you hear today, you can note down the number and citation of the paper and find it in the attached bibliography afterwards. Our first paper today is by first and last authors Aikruboom and Papma from the Erasmus MC University Medical Center in Rotterdam, and it investigates the stability of neuropsychiatric symptoms in dementia. It was published in the International Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry, and the title is Biweekly Fluctuations of Neuropsychiatric Symptoms According to the Neuropsychiatric Inventory, Erratic Symptoms or Scores. The authors recruited the spousal caregivers of 23 patients from a memory clinic. 44% of these patients had dementia. The caregivers completed the Neuropsychiatric Inventory, or NPI, four times over six weeks, and also the authors looked at repeated measures of caregiver burden to see how these two might relate. According to the NPI scores, neuropsychiatric symptoms were highly variable over six weeks. The assessment is split into various domains, including things like apathy, anxiety, disinhibition, and hallucinations, and only 35% of the ones that had appeared in the initial test also appeared in the follow up. There was large within person variation in these domains, meaning that individual patients' scores changed a lot from one assessment to the next. Higher presence of neuropsychiatric symptoms was significantly associated with greater caregiver burden but the fluctuation in symptoms was not related to changes in caregiver burden. The authors highlight the need for more research on why neuropsychiatric symptoms, or at least the scores on the NPI, fluctuate so much over a short time frame. Next up, we've got first author Divers, or Diverse, and last author Calamia from Louisiana State University, and they examine the heterogeneity, that is, variation, in how symptoms of depression relate to cognitive impairment. Paper 2 was published in the Journal of Clinical and Experimental Neuropsychology, and the title is Examining Heterogeneity in Depression Symptoms and Associations with Cognition and Everyday Function in MCI. So as you heard in the title, this study was in the context of MCI, which is mild cognitive impairment. And MCI is a clinical diagnosis that often progresses to dementia, not always, but it is considered a precursor or prodromal stage of Alzheimer's. Here, the authors examined how depressive symptoms in older adults with MCI relate to various domains of cognition, including memory, attention, language, and executive function. They also looked at informant rated everyday function. So, similar to the last paper in which a caregiver completed the assessment for someone with uh, dementia, in this case, an informant is completing the assessment for someone with MCI. So, that could be, for example, a family member. You'll have to check the paper for details on the sample size and the exact measures they used for depression and cognition. Exploratory factor analyses yielded six distinct symptom classes, namely somatic symptoms, severe depression, minimal depression, anhedonic symptoms, cognitive symptoms, and low life satisfaction symptoms. And as a reminder, anhedonia is uh, a loss of or an inability to feel pleasure, including for activities that uh, were previously associated with pleasure. So these classes significantly varied on all measures of cognition and daily function. In particular, the anhedonic symptom class and the severe depression class was related to the most substantial cognitive decline, and the minimal depression and low life satisfaction classes showed the least cognitive decline. The findings of this study could help classify different depression profiles in people with MCI and how these might impact cognitive and everyday function. We're sticking with the relationship between depression symptoms and cognitive decline for this next paper, but this time the focus is on sex differences. Paper three is by authors Lucas and Alexandru at the University of Montreal, and the punchline is in the title. It is Neuropsychiatric Symptoms Influence Differently Cognitive Decline in Older Women and Men and this was published in the Journal of Psychiatric Research. The authors used demographic, neuropsychological, and neuropsychiatric data from two large databases, the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative and the National Alzheimer's Coordinating Center. They merged these datasets for a total of 506 participants with healthy cognitive performance, 467 with MCI, And 238 with Alzheimer's. When looking at how cognitive abilities were influenced by sex, the authors found differential effects based on clinical stages. In the healthy control and Alzheimer's groups, women had better fluency performance, whereas in the MCI group, women had better working memory and men had better oral naming. Depression was found to negatively impact processing speed in Alzheimer's regardless of sex and there were some interaction effects between sex and neuropsychiatric symptoms. In the MCI group, women with apathy had better working memory performance, and in the AD group, women with depression had better fluency, whereas the opposite pattern was observed in men, with depression being associated with worse, focused attention. All in all, these findings suggest that there are sex differences in cognitive performance, which manifest differently depending on the stage of cognitive decline and have varying interaction effects with depression symptoms. So that brings us to the end of our neuropsychiatric section. Let's take a break here before we switch over to cognitive changes. I'm Lara from the bibliography team here at Aminder. Did you know the episode you're listening to has a numbered bibliography that you can find in our show notes or directly on our website, and all of our episodes come with their own bibliographies so that you can easily find and look into the papers that interest you. If you're also interested in keeping up to date with scientific publications in Alzheimer's research and working in collaboration with other teammates, we would love it if you consider joining us. Send your CV and an indication of what you're interested in doing with us to Aminder podcast at gmail.com enjoy the rest of the episode nearly one million older Canadians live with a form of dementia this number is expected to double within 10 years and sadly no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers it has to stop research can help solve this problem we are 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration in Aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. Okay, we have five papers to go, and the next three are on cognitive changes. This next one creates a nice bridge with the last as it's about the importance of social connectedness. There's a lot of evidence that social isolation worsens cognitive decline, likely in part due to its relation to depression. There are, however, other factors at play. For instance, individuals who lose their social networks may have less access to resources or cognitively stimulating activities. With that in mind, Perry and Apostolova from Indiana University set out to investigate some of the social mechanisms underlying the relationship between social connectedness and cognitive aging. Paper four is entitled Social Networks and Cognitive Function, an Evaluation of Social Bridging and Bonding Mechanisms, and it's published in Gerontologist. This study looked at nine different measures of social connectedness with a focus on two forms of social enrichment. One is social bridging, that is, access to an expansive and diverse set of loosely connected individuals, and two, social bonding, that is, integration in a supportive network of close ties. Looking at egocentric network and cognitive data from 311 older adults, the authors used linear regressions to examine the associations between these forms of social connectedness with global cognitive function, episodic memory, and executive function. They report that measures of social bridging were consistently associated with better cognitive outcomes, whereas there were no effects of social bonding. You can check the paper for the precise measures of each form of social connectedness, but overall this suggests that having a wider, looser social network is important for maintaining cognitive function, perhaps through a cognitive reserve that is driven and maintained by irregular contact with large and diverse groups of people. The findings from paper four make a strong case for going out and socializing, but what happens when the desire or ability to do so is also impacted by dementia? Let's dig into that question with paper number five, which is entitled I do not enjoy too much being with people. It takes me a long time to interact a qualitative analysis of awareness of relationships in people with dementia. The first author is Trindade and the last author is Durado from Universidade Federal do Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, and it was published in Aging and Mental Health. This was a qualitative study in which the authors conducted interviews with nine participants with mild to moderate dementia in order to investigate their awareness and reflections on changing relationships. They used a modified version of grounded theory for their analysis. This is a qualitative research method where inductive reasoning is used to construct a theory from the collected data. The authors found that some participants did recognize the changes in their relationships that accompanied dementia, although there was a tendency to immediately deny them. There were differences depending on the type of social relationship. For example, participants expressed less discomfort in interactions with family and friends compared to the embarrassment that they expressed in unfamiliar relationships. The participants could also describe their cognitive deficits to some extent, though several attempted to normalize or minimize these. The authors conclude that the relationship domain may be a valuable tool for assessing a person's awareness of their dementia, and that the readiness to acknowledge cognitive deficits or other changes depends on the closeness of social relationship. So that last point might seem self-evident, but it's a good moment to pause and consider the effect of stigma on how readily someone with dementia can come to terms with their condition and maintain their social relationships. If you're interested in some of the ongoing efforts to shift our social perception of dementia, check out the Reimagining Dementia Coalition. They're promoting the use of creativity and play to foster a more inclusive and joyous environment for everyone who is impacted by dementia. You can find them at www.reimaginingdementia.com. Okay, We're switching gears for paper number six, which focuses on episodic memory, that is, the recollection of personal experiences and information as to when, where, and with whom something occurred. Episodic memory impairment is a hallmark of AD, and here, first author Chatsikostopoulos and last author Papatsikis evaluate the use of a specific test in differentiation between MCI and AD. There's more info in the title, which is Episodic Memory in Amnestic Mild Cognitive Impairment and Alzheimer's Disease Dementia, using the DOORS and PEOPLE tool to differentiate between early AMCI, late AMCI, mild ADD diagnostic groups. And this is from Aristotle University and Oslo Metropolitan University, uh, the first being in Greece, the second in Norway, and was published in Diagnostics. So, unfortunately, there isn't a lot of detail in the abstract, so this is one that you might need to follow up on in the bibliography. But in short, the authors use the Doors and People tool to assess differences between people with a diagnostic of amnestic MCI, late amnestic MCI, and mild Alzheimer's dementia. An amnestic MCI is a form of mild cognitive uh, impairment that primarily affects memory as opposed to non-amnestic MCI, which would primarily impact other cognitive domains. The DOORS and PEOPLES test consists of four subtests, and the author's statistic analysis showed discriminant potential in each of these subtests. In other words, using this assessment tool is promising for discriminating between these different stages of cognitive impairment, which has important diagnostic and prognostic implications. The last two papers take us into heavy statistical and big data territory, which I admit is not my expertise. Do my best here, but please do check up on the papers afterwards if you want the nitty gritty details. Paper 7 is Issues and Recommendations for the Residual Approach to Quantifying Cognitive Resilience and Reserve. It's by first author Elman and last author Kreeman from University of California, San Diego and was published in Alzheimer's Research and Therapy. I had briefly mentioned cognitive reserve earlier in the episode. This term is used to explain inter-individual differences in how resilient one is to cognitive decline in face of brain pathologies such as Alzheimer's. Identifying factors that promote cognitive reserve is an important research avenue, as these may help in preventing cognitive decline. And if you're interested in that line of research, you can check out my non-pharmacological prevention and intervention episodes. The latest was released just a week ago, and it is episode number 306. So one way that cognitive reserve or resilience has been operationalized in research is through the residual method, that is, doing a regression analysis of cognition with a risk factor and using the residual as a measure of resilience. While this is an attractive statistical approach, the authors argue that the interpretation is complicated because of the statistical properties of regression equations and may be altogether incorrect in certain contexts. They go on to illustrate the issues with using residuals using both simulated and real data of people with AD, demonstrating that the residual measure of resilience is often tightly linked to cognition meaning that any association with other variables of interest might be primarily driven by cognition. In other words, cognition becomes a confounding variable that is difficult to parse apart from the potential resilience factor of interest. The authors conclude by advising against using the residual-based method, and instead argue in favor of constructing more complete models of cognition to better identify adverse and protective factors that influence cognitive decline. Our last paper for today, number eight, also focuses on potential protective factors of interest, specifically lifestyle factors such as physical activity and diet. I'll give you the title before we dive in. It's Classifying the Lifestyle Status for Alzheimer's Disease from Clinical Notes Using Deep Learning with Weak Supervision. The first authors are Shen and Schutte and last author Zhang at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, and it was published in BMC Medical Informatics and Decision-Making. The analysis of electronic health records with AD could help understand the lifestyle factors that influence a patient's disease trajectory, but often this information is stored in the form of clinical narratives and is thus hard to easily quantify. Here, the authors use natural language processing machine learning models in order to identify lifestyle statuses using clinical texts in English. The abstract gives a thorough breakdown of the methods, from how data was collected and extracted, to the use of natural language processing algorithms, to the comparison between different machine learning models. It's a little over my head, so please do check out the paper if you want those details. From all of the models they compared, the authors conclude that the ULMS-BERT model performed the best. That is, the Unified Medical Language System Bidirectional Encoder Representations from Transformers model. And what I mean by best here is that it was the most successful at classifying status of physical activity. The authors make recommendations on how to train machine learning models with their approach And for what models work best for classifying lifestyle factor status from Alzheimer's disease clinical notes. That is it for our episode today. That was short and sweet, and hopefully also useful and accessible. And that also wraps up our July series. A huge thank you to everyone who worked on today's episode. So, starting from the sorting team who sorts through our papers every month, that is Sarah Luedi, Edin Dubchak, Ben Cornish, Ellen Kosh, Dana Clausen, Christy Yu, and Ellen Rowe. Thank you as well to Ellen Kosh for reviewing my script for today and editing the audio, and to Anusha Kamesh for reviewing the audio edit. Uh, she is also the wonderful, creative mind behind the music for Aminder and a fellow podcast host. You can check out her music at AK Music on YouTube or Anusha Kamesh on SoundCloud. And the word cloud for today's episode was produced by Laura Nbasi, the bibliography by Sarah Luedi. So you just heard a lot of names of the hardworking individuals on the Aminder team, but we are always looking for more help. Uh, we do this on a voluntary basis and unfortunately we can't cover all of the content that we would like to right now so if you're interested in science communication and would like some practice perhaps with summarizing literature or hosting a podcast or doing any of the background work that goes into this podcast please get at us by email with your cv and a quick note about your interest we would also appreciate it if you can leave us a review or just give us feedback through social media. You can, of course, share this with your friends and perhaps fellow researchers who might benefit from our podcast. With that, I wish you a wonderful day, a wonderful week, happy researching, or whatever it is that occupies your time. Talk to you soon.